Well, our series this summer is titled Come and Die, Answering Christ's Call to Follow Him. I got the idea for the title of this series from this book, The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I mentioned him last week. Uh, he was a young uh, German Lutheran pastor who served uh, the Lord back in the, the days of the Hitler regime. Um, and uh, in fact, when uh, his activity uh, was linked to some of the conspirators who uh, had failed in their attempt to assassinate Hitler, uh, he was one of the guys that was uh, hanged to death by Hitler, made an example of. And, uh, and he basically paid with his life to follow Christ. And uh, this is a great book, probably his most well-known book, called The Cost of Discipleship. And my favorite sentence in this book is simply this. Bonhoeffer wrote, quote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Classic quote. And uh, worth the price of the book. And so while this sermon isn't, or this series is not based on this book necessarily, um, the title is, but this series is based on some passages in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus mentioned the expression, follow me. And uh, he surrounded it with other things that he said uh, that really fill out for us, round out for us. What did, what did he mean when he said, follow me? And so tonight we're going to start by looking at Luke chapter 9, verse 23, just one verse tonight to launch us into this whole idea of thinking about what, what did Jesus mean when he said, follow me? Luke chapter 9, verse 23, a, a verse I'm assuming is very familiar with uh, to all of you, a, a verse that some of you probably even have memorized, um, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, and Jesus was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, these are some of the hardest words that ever came out of the mouth of Jesus. And when I say hard, I don't mean hard to understand because, frankly, I think they're easy to understand, but they're hard to do. And I like to refer to this passage as the crossroads. And we were familiar with that expression. A crossroad is where two roads cross. It's, it's a point where one must choose between two different paths. A decision needs to be made which way to go. And so Jesus had strategically led his disciples to the crossroads of his life and ministry. He brought them to the place where he told them about the cross. And here in Luke 9, Jesus had been spending time training and preparing his disciples to carry on his ministry after he was gone. And uh, these guys had left everything to follow Christ. And according to their spokesman, Peter, they were convinced that he was the Messiah, the Savior who was sent from God. Notice verse uh, 18, and it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, who do people say that I am? In other words, what's the word on the street? What, what are people saying? Who, 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 do they, who do they think I am? 
In verse 19, they answered and said, well, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? In other words, that's great. I, I appreciate that, but I don't really care what they think. I want to know what you think. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, here it is, the Christ of God. Great declaration of their faith that he was indeed the Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament that God would send. They said, you're, you're him. We believe it. But notice how Jesus warned them in the next verse, verse 21. He warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, which is very strange. Hey, don't, don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. I, I don't want anybody to know that quite yet. Just, just, just yet. But then he went on to tell them about his impending death. Verse 22, he said, he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone and saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Well, according to the other gospel writers, this is when Peter responded by rebuking Christ and essentially said, this is never going to happen to you over my dead body. They're not going to get past me. They're going to have to get past me first, Jesus, if they're going to try to take you out. And Jesus responded to Peter with a rebuke of his own, followed by even some stronger words. Um, not only did he say, get thee behind me, Satan, you remember that? But he said, verse 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. In essence, what Jesus said to Peter was, Peter, you're exactly right. It will be over your dead body. The disciples had just become fully convinced of who Jesus was, and he immediately revealed to them for the first time that he was going to die. And what's more, he made it clear that confessing him as Lord, you are the Christ, the Son of God, if you're going to confess that, that also means you need to commit your entire life to me, even if it means you have to die too. And so the disciples were at the crossroads where they were confronted with the reality of the cross. That Jesus, Jesus hadn't come to reign, he came to die. And so after following him for two and a half years or so, Jesus just stopped them cold in their tracks and essentially said this, this, this is it guys, it's time to level with you, okay? I'm heading to Jerusalem, not to set up my throne, I'm heading to Jerusalem to die on a cross. And you can come with me, on three conditions. And in verse 23, Jesus listed three compulsory, compulsory conditions for becoming a Christian. Yeah, I just said that, okay? Some of you might have gone, whoa, that sounded not right. I believe verse 23, we see three compulsory conditions for becoming a Christian. What does he say? If, if, anyone wishes to come after me. That's a conditional clause, is it not? If anyone wants to be a Christian, that's what he's saying. If anyone wants to come after me, you want to be a follower of me, you want to be a Christian, 
This is what you must be willing to do. You need to be willing to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Now, before we look at these three conditions, I think it's critical for us to know exactly who must meet the conditions that Jesus laid out here. In other words, who is Jesus talking to? Who is he addressing? Notice it says, and he was saying to them, what? All. You say, who's, who, who are the all there? Well, if you look over in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, it says that he was addressing not just his disciples at this moment, he was also addressing the multitudes. So the all here in verse 23 included both the disciples who were following Christ as well as the unbelieving crowds or masses who were constantly surrounding him. And, and, and out of some, maybe out of curiosity, just kind of going along with the parade. And so Jesus wasn't just appealing to those who had already left everything to follow him, but to anyone, that's what he says, if anyone, right? So, so he's, he's appealing to anyone who wished to come after him, anyone who wished to follow him, anyone who wished to be a Christian. And so I, I, I say all that to simply say, I don't think this passage should be viewed or interpreted as a call to Christians to be more dedicated Christians. He was reminding the disciples of the cost involved in being one of his disciples, but at the same time, he was inviting the multitudes to consider becoming one of his disciples. Let me ask you a question. How many of you here, and again, this is kind of a, a bold question, and it's going to take some courage to answer it by raising your hand or not raising your hand. How many of you in here consider yourself to be a Christian? Raise your hand. You consider yourself to be a Christian, okay? All right, you put your hands down. Let me ask you a second question. How many of you consider yourself to be a true disciple of Christ? Raise your hand. Okay, did you notice there were less hands go up that second time? Why is that? Why was there less hands? Why didn't that, when I asked you if you were a Christian, it was like, Phew. then if I asked you if you were a true disciple of Christ, you're like, um, I don't know if I'm willing to say that. I mean, that's pretty bold to say I'm a true disciple of Christ. Well, I asked those questions because I just wanted to, sh to, to reveal or have you see that I think there's a lot of confusion in the church today regarding this issue of discipleship. And some believe and, and teach that there is a call to discipleship that is different from the call to salvation. In other words, they view the Christian life in two stages. You first become a Christian, and then sometime later, you become a what? A disciple. And so the result is this, this two-class system of Christianity made up of ordinary, everyday Christians, and then you've got the super-Christians, the super-committed Christians. And so you've kind of got like a, a JV and a varsity, right? You've got JV Christians, and you've got varsity Christians. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that a Christian and a disciple is the same exact thing. 
Disciple and Christian are synonymous terms in the New Testament. The disciple, disciple is the basic term for a follower of Jesus in the Gospels and the book of Acts. Matthew 28, verse 19. Go into all the world and make what? Disciples. Okay? That was the word that was used in the Gospels for a follower of Christ or a Christian. And you see that in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, Acts 9, 26. But then you get to Acts eleven twenty six. Interesting reference here. Acts eleven twenty six, and this is when uh, the gospel made it to Antioch, um, kind of on the edge of the uttermost part of the earth. Acts eleven twenty six. It says, for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So before Christians were ever called Christians, they were called what? Disciples. And after that point, interesting, um, other terms were used to describe a follower of Jesus, like believer, saint. Um, in fact, the word disciple is not found anywhere in the epistles, in the letters after the book of Acts. You know, we're talking about you know, First and Second Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and First and Second Thessalonians. The word disciple is not used there. The word believer is used there. The word saint is used. The word Christian. And so, uh, I think this is important for us to to to, to distinguish this in our minds. Uh, Michael Wilkins wrote a helpful book called "Following the Master: A Biblical Theology of Discipleship." Listen to what he said, and I'm quoting here: "Discipleship is not a second step in the Christian life." but rather is synonymous with the Christian life. At conversion, one becomes a disciple of Jesus, and the process of growth as a Christian is called discipleship. For Dietrich Bonhoeffer, to speak of entrance to the Christian life without recognizing that it also means entrance into the life of discipleship is to cheapen the grace of God. And so you could, he could have very easily titled this book Instead of the cost of discipleship, he could have called it the cost of what? Christianity. The cost of being a Christian. So that's why I think it's best to interpret Jesus' words here in Luke 9.23 as not an optional call to some higher level of sanctification, which I think in a lot of, in a lot of places, a lot of times, that's how this passage is is. is is understood, that's how it's taught, that's how it's presented. But rather than an optional call to some higher level of sanctification, I think this is an initial call to salvation. Jesus was laying out the requirements or the conditions, as we're calling them tonight, for becoming a Christian. In other words, if you want to be a Christian, these are the three things that you must be willing to do. This is what it means to be a Christian. And so what are these conditions? There's three of them. Number one, the first condition we'll just call denial. Denial. Notice he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Now, let me start by telling you what deny himself or yourself doesn't mean, okay? It, it doesn't mean giving up some comfort or sacrificing some pleasure or adopting some wimpy, non-assertive attitude towards others. 
Jesus was not calling people to an aesthetic, monk-like lifestyle where you live this life of self-denial. You deny yourself food and you deny yourself you know, clothes. You deny yourself uh, you know, the finer things of life or whatever. This is not self-flagellation like Martin Luther whipping himself right in, in the monastery. Or like my high school buddies, uh, I grew up in, in Massachusetts and a very strong Catholic influence there. Uh, in Massachusetts, and so all my buddies were, were Catholics, and, and so I, I just still remember, like it was yesterday, in the locker room um, around Lent. I, I never grew up Catholic, so I didn't know what Lent was. I, they started talking about Lent. I'm like, hey, what are you giving up? What are you guys, what are you giving up for Lent? What are you giving up for Lent? Hey, Ramey, what are you giving up for Lent? I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm giving up chocolate, or I'm giving up smoking for Lent, and, uh, and you know, to, yeah, I'm giving up having sex with my girlfriend for Lent. <laughs> like, so, Ramey, what are, you, what are you giving up for Lent? And I'm like, uh, you know what? I already gave my entire life up to Jesus Christ. I don't know what you guys are talking about, right? But that's the idea that you give up something, you deny yourself something um, for a season, you know, uh, uh, for, for some calendar event. This, that's not what Jesus was talking about. What? What he meant here when he says that you must be willing to deny yourself, literally to deny means to disown. And so when you disown someone, you completely separate yourself from them. You totally abandon them. To disown someone is to act like you don't know them. Um, sometimes we would do things with our kids in the mall and, uh, of course, we would embarrass them. That's why my kids won't teach me any cool things, any dance moves or anything, because they know I'll just whip it out in the middle of the mall somewhere and they'll, I'll embarrass them. So they don't teach me stuff. Like, Dad, I'm, no, I'm not going to tell you what that is. I'm not going to show you how to do that. You know, little little floss thing. I don't, I don't know how to do that because they, they won't teach me how to do that. So, but yeah, they'd be like, okay, Dad, we're disowning you. We're acting like we don't know you. We're walking away from you, right? It's really what Peter, what Peter did, he denied Christ three times. He acted like he didn't what? Know Jesus. And so it, to, to deny yourself means to treat yourself like you don't exist. You know this as well as I do. When Muslim converts um, come to Christ, oftentimes their family what? Disowns them. And they actually pretend that they don't exist. It's like we're, we're putting you behind the sun, right? We, we're, we, we act like you don't exist. And so to deny yourself, to disown yourself, is to pretend like you don't exist. Ironically, we, we typically act like we are the most important thing in the world. Don't we? It's all about us. But Jesus said if we want to follow him, we need to forget about ourselves and our wants, our desires, our goals, and our dreams. To deny yourself means that we stop living like we are the most important person in the universe and live like Jesus is the most important person in the universe. It means that we stop doing what we want to do what Jesus wants. It, it means we stop demanding our right to call the shots in our life and let him call the shots. Submit to his lordship in our lives. 
It means you stop trying to control your life and you let Christ be in control. You stop serving yourself and you start serving Christ. You stop pleasing yourself and you start pleasing Christ. You stop saying no to Christ and start saying no to yourself. And so as Christians, we must live in a constant state of denial. We're, we're constantly denying ourselves the sinful things that we crave. That is the very essence of Christianity. I'll never forget when I was driving to a nearby city. When I lived in California, Kelly and I lived in California. We were ministered there for a number of years. And I was actually, uh, had been invited to preach this message to a group of young people in a neighboring city. And so I was driving there. And the entire time I was driving there, I was being tempted with thoughts of all the sinful pleasures that I could enjoy on my way home from that city that night. You're like, you're a pastor. You're going to preach and you were thinking about that stuff? Yeah. <laughs> I was being tempted. And, and oftentimes you're tempted most when you're either about to be used by the Lord or after you've been used by the Lord. That's when you're most susceptible to temptation. So I was just thinking, you know, it was, hey, it's going to be nighttime. No one knows me in this city. I hadn't given Kelly a time, a specific time when I'd be home. This was a perfect setup for Satan to appeal to my flesh with the things of the world. But as I was battling with that, those thoughts and those temptations, it dawned on me that this is exactly what this passage that I was about to preach is all about. Denying myself anything that would dishonor and disobey Jesus Christ. See, the world is saying the exact opposite of what Christ said. Christ said it's all about self-denial. The world says it's all about self-indulgence. Right? What are, the, what are some of the, the cliches or the advertising um, lines in our society? Have it your way. Obey your thirst. Be good to yourself. Pamper yourself. Indulge yourself. Assert yourself. Love yourself. That's what the world tells us. The whole focus is on who? On self. But Jesus said, forget yourself. Act like you don't exist. And I think we could even go deeper here on a theological level. I think what Jesus was saying here, to deny yourself, means you realize that there is nothing good in you. In other words, we need to admit that we are sinners who deserve nothing but to be punished for our sin and condemned to hell for all eternity. There's nothing, and there's nothing that we can do about it. And so consequently, we, we abandon all hope of saving ourselves. You deny your own ability, your own good works, your own effort, and you rely solely on what Christ did for you on the cross. In other words, you deny anything that you could do to somehow make yourself right with God. And so this is the first condition for becoming a Christian is denial. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. I was reading a 
a little book this, this afternoon called The Shadow of the Cross by Walter Chantry, and you may have heard of him. He wrote the uh, book Today's Gospel, Authentic or Synthetic, a really helpful little book that we'll reference later on when we talk about the, the rich young ruler. But he has a chapter in there about this self-denial concept. And he said, the cross hits us the moment we wake up in the morning. That we're called to self-denial from the moment we wake up and that alarm goes off. We have a choice to make because typically our flesh wants to go and hit the snooze button, right? And just catch a few more Z's. And, and, and the question is, are we going to just kind of sleep, keep sleeping or are we going to get up and where are we going to spend some time with Jesus? Are we going to deny our flesh and ourself and, you know, our desires for comfort and rest and, right? And are we going to get up and do the hard thing? And, um, and then when you, you get up and then you get out your Bible and you begin to pray, you start to get assaulted with all sorts of distractions and you know, you're, you're tempted to look at your phone and see who might have emailed you the night during the night or text that came in and you start getting distracted by all the different things, right? And, and uh, that's, again, you have to deny yourself and say, okay, I can't, I, 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 my desire is to look at that or to, to catch up on that or to start doing that, whatever that is. I got a lot to do today. And so you got to deny yourself and say, I got to fight to stay focused on Jesus right now. The Christian life is just a constant daily self-denial, moment by moment denying yourself. So that's the first condition is self-denial. Second condition is death. Death. Notice back in verse 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. Now let me first tell you what take up your cross doesn't mean, okay? It doesn't mean bearing some burden or trial or difficulty. Um, We typically equate taking up your cross or bearing your cross, right? We talk about some illness or disease. Um, Maybe it's an insensitive spouse or an unreasonable boss or maybe a cantankerous mother-in-law or Maybe it's your calculus class. You know, it's, we talk about these burdens that we have to bear, these crosses that we have to bear. That's kind of how we use that, this, this expression. But when we spiritualize this phrase, I think we take away the radical impact of what Jesus was saying here. We, we need to take this literally and understand it exactly how the disciples must have understood it when they heard it come out of the mouth of Christ. When the disciples and the multitudes heard Jesus words here, the only thing that came into their minds was what? When he said, take up his cross daily. What was the, what was the only thing that came into their mind? It was the picture, an image of a condemned criminal with a cross strapped to their back, walking along this road, lined with people mocking him to the place of execution. In those days, that's what it meant to carry or take up your cross. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they mastered crucifixion. They refined it and reserved it to torture and kill the worst criminals. 
It was one of the most cruel and painful forms of death ever known to man. In fact, it was estimated that some 30,000 crucifixions occurred during the life of Christ. That's over two a day. And so when people thought of, of the cross, I mean, they had visual images around them all the time. They didn't, they didn't think of a, of a nice necklace or a pretty pair of earrings, right, that, that we typically equate crosses with. It was a, the cross was a hideous instrument of death. I mean, you could say this, a modern paraphrase of what Jesus said here would be to take up your electric chair or your lethal injection and follow me. And so clearly Jesus demanded that his followers be ready and willing to die for him. And with the exception of John, the apostle John, who died on the island of Patmos, all of Christ's disciples died a what? A martyr. And Peter even requested to be crucified what? Remember? Upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die like his Lord. One of the ministries that we highlight here at Lakeside is the persecuted church, open doors, voice of the martyrs. So we're familiar with the fact that there are many people in foreign countries who are being persecuted and killed for being a Christian. And, and so um, if, you, if you, when you read this verse or you teach this verse in a in, in the Middle East, for example, where Christianity is a crime, you don't have to principalize this. <laughs> it, it is what it is. You, you need to be willing to, to risk your life to become a Christian. That's what, that's what this means. Now, for us, living in a free country, the West, like America, Lord willing, most of us will never have to literally die because we are Christians, but I think we must be willing to endure whatever persecution or rejection or shame or suffering or even death for the sake of Christ. And notice, this is a daily dying and take up his cross daily. In other words, we need to be prepared to endure these kinds of things persecution, rejection, shame, suffering on a daily basis. We need to be willing to put to death our selfish desires every day, dying to ourselves. One of the most faithful followers of Jesus Christ was, of course, the Apostle Paul. He got this. He understood this concept. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die, what, remember? Daily. That's what Paul said. I die daily. That alarm goes off tomorrow morning. It's another opportunity to die. <laughs> another day to die to yourself and to your flesh and your sinful desires. And Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So Paul understood that being a Christian was conditioned on dying to self and living for Christ. Like it says in 2 um, Corinthians 
chapter 5, verse 14, Paul said, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for, what? Themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So the Christian life is all about dying to yourself and living for Christ. And so the second condition for becoming a Christian is death. So you have denial, you have death, and then thirdly, you have what we could call discipleship. Discipleship. Notice again, verse 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now again, let me tell you what follow me, follow me doesn't mean, okay? Follow me doesn't mean follow me when it's convenient. Follow me when you feel like it. We're going to see this later, um, later in this chapter when we get to the end and uh, look at verses 57 through 62, these people that wanted to follow Jesus, but they had these conditions. And like, well, I'll follow you, but let me go first do this. So following me is not when it's convenient, when you feel like it every once in a while, or when you get old and settle down for some of you younger people in here, right? When I was a youth pastor, uh, I can't tell you how many times I would challenge a young person to commit their life to following Jesus, and they would say, well, yeah, you know, I'm going to do that, um, you know, when I get older, and when I have, you know, when I get married and I have kids and I settle down, that's when I'm going to get serious about Jesus, but for now, I'm going to have fun, and I'm going to enjoy my life. I'll follow Jesus later. So that's not what Jesus was saying. What, what, what did he mean when he said, follow me? Well, this was Christ's call. I mean, specifically, exactly to Peter, to Andrew, to James and John, to Philip, to Matthew. And when Jesus met them, what did he say? Follow me, boys. Follow me. And what did that mean to them? What that meant to them is to drop whatever you're doing right now and do what I tell you to do and go wherever I tell you to go. That's what it meant to follow me. And so they did. They immediately left their boats and their nets and their tax office behind to unreservedly obey and serve Christ. Now, I don't think this is uh, implying here that you know, when you become a Christian, or in order for you to become a Christian, you've got to, you know, sell your business or whatever. Stop going to work. Uh, you know, I don't think that's the, that's the point here. I think the point is that we need to be willing to leave behind our old sinful life. And whatever we were doing before, we need to stop doing that, and we need to start living a new way by following in the footsteps of Jesus. We need to leave our old way and learn a new way of living. And we learn by following his example. When Jesus said to follow me, he meant to obey me, imitate me, become like me. 1 Peter 2.21, Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. 1 John 2.6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. In other words, if you say that you're a Christian, you claim to be a Christian, then you should live like Jesus lived. 
obviously not perfectly. None of us will be able to live like Jesus perfectly, but that's what our goal, that's we're striving after that. And so the life of every Christian should reflect Christ. That's what he commanded of his followers. That's what he meant when he said, follow me. And by the way, this is a present tense command. Literally, he said, keep following me. In other words, this is, um, this is not just for a few months after summer camp. If you remember my testimony last, last week, right? Or a few years after you commit your life, commit your life to Christ, after you walk an aisle, you get saved, right? No, this is, this is, this is following me for the rest of your life. Christ demanded that we live a consistent life of obedience to him. And this is, I think, where we've missed it or lost it in American Christianity, that being a Christian is a lifelong commitment to follow and obey Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not just showing up at to church on Sunday. It's not getting baptized. It's not, you know, even reading your Bible and praying all this. It's, it's, a, it's a lifelong commitment to follow and obey Jesus Christ because he expects us to consistently spend time with him in order to live uh, or, or learn to live like he lived. I mean, that's, that's the essence of what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Christ. Again, that word disciple literally means pupil or learner. And so the learning process whereby we learn to observe and obey Christ's commands, Matthew 28, 19, remember this? Uh, Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to what? Observe or obey all that I've commanded you. So that learning process, how, how do you teach someone, how do you learn to observe or obey Christ's commands, all that he's commanded us, and, 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 and we grow more and we become more like Christ, we call that what? Discipleship. Discipleship. Our growth, really discipleship is, according to Matthew 28, 19, Go into the world and make go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. So discipleship is helping someone, first of all, find Christ and then ultimately to follow Christ, right? Sometimes we just equate discipleship. Well, that's what I do when once a person gets saved, and that's what we do when we go over to Panera Bread and we sit there with our Bibles and we talk and pray together. That's discipleship. Well, that's part of discipleship. But the big picture of discipleship, hey, somebody's got to find Christ first. You've got to help people find Christ, right? So you can actually disciple unbelievers, right? That's called evangelism. And so you evangelize and you equip believers. So again, the idea here, what, is, what are we talking about? The, the following me, it's, it's, it's the, the, the learning and growing uh, to obey Christ, becoming more like Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. So you've got, what are they? Three conditions, denial, death, discipleship. These are the three conditions, the ifs, you do this, then this is true, right? 
these are the three conditions that Jesus laid down for those who wanted to become a Christian, to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. This is what we must be willing to do to become a Christian. Now, let me be clear. There is absolutely nothing that we can do to become a Christian. Did you hear me? There's absolutely nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to become a Christian. Becoming a Christian involves acknowledging that our sin has made us enemies of God who deserve to be punished for all eternity in hell. And at the same time, it involves believing that God, in his great love, punished his son, Jesus, on the cross, killing him in our place. And in the place of all those who are willing to give up their life of sin and live in obedience to him. It's believing that. That's what Jesus meant when he commanded people to repent and believe. But we need to understand that repentance and faith are both gifts from God that he graciously grants those that he's chosen to save, which makes them willing. He makes us willing and able to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow him. Why? Because we can't do these things on our own. It's impossible to do these things. So he has to make us willing and able to do these things. But at the same time, these three things constitute true salvation. They characterize the life of someone who is truly saved. Again, salvation is not based on anything we do. It's a free gift from God, but it's not cheap. Cheap grace is what Bonhoeffer's concern was. Salvation cost God the life of his son. Christ gave up his life for us, so it shouldn't surprise us that that he requires us to give up our life for him. He gave everything to save us, and so we must give everything to receive that salvation. And again, ultimately, it is God who enables us to meet these three conditions. He has to, since none of these things come naturally to us. We instinctively shrink back from this kind of stuff right here. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, following me, doing what I tell you to do rather than what you want to do. No, we we instinctively shrink back from this kind of surrender, this kind of sacrifice that Christ requires of those who would come after him. And that's why Jesus followed up these three compulsory conditions with what I'd like to call three compelling considerations, which serve to spur us on to do these three things, to completely commit our lives to him. What are these three compelling considerations? Well, it's the next three verses. For, in other words, these are purpose clauses. I'm going to tell you why you should deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. That's the first compelling consideration. Second compelling consideration, verse 25, for what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And then the third Consideration for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. 
Next week, we'll look at those three considerations or what you could say are three reasons why we must deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow Christ. So come back next week for the follow-up because really those next three verses, I would just say this way, whatever excuse that you might have for not being a Christian or for whatever excuse maybe someone you know has told you why they're not willing to commit their life to Christ, these three reasons to be a Christian will blow any excuse out of the water. And so I would encourage you, maybe if there's someone you've been trying to share the gospel with and um, they've been saying no, no, they've got all these reasons, all these excuses for not committing their life to Christ, encourage them to come next week and, and see how their excuses match up with the reasons that Jesus gives for why they should be a Christian. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and, and uh, this one simple verse that's just packed with powerful truth. And uh, Lord, I trust I've been faithful to teach this passage accurately and in a balanced way and, and tried to harmonize what we, what we know the rest of the scripture teaches about salvation. But Lord, we can't deny the fact that Jesus called for radical, total radical commitment. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who um, maybe who's thought they're a Christian just because they kind of grew up in a Christian home or just comes to church on a regular basis, but they've never denied themselves, they've never taken up their cross, they've never committed to follow him and to become like Christ, Lord, that, that they would truly come to Christ tonight. And Lord, maybe someone here who um, is not a Christian, they know that. I pray that you would uh, compel them, Lord, by the reasons that we just read, even though we haven't discussed them yet, that they would already see how the compelling nature of these reasons why, that even if they got everything they ever wanted in life, everything they were holding out for and holding Christ off so they could get this, whatever this is, what would it matter if they get it all, but then they lose their soul in hell? that that would just motivate them and compel them to want to give their life to Christ tonight. So Lord, help us to um, just grant us grace, Lord, as believers, as followers of Christ, to tonight and tomorrow morning and to, to just live a life of self-denial, daily, regular self-denial, and that uh, we would be willing to endure whatever persecution, any suffering, any um, uh, mistreatment, Lord, that you would ordain for our lives and that we would faithfully learn of Christ, spend time with Christ, learn to think like Christ, act like Christ, talk like Christ, live like Christ, Lord, that we could be a reflection of Christ to those around us. We pray this in his name. Amen.